0: Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey.
1: And back again, it's Kayla McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's conversation with Queenman's residents ahead of the Queemans port expansion in the state's wind turbine project. Then Moses Nagel talks with Samira Singare from the Saratoga Black Lives Matter about their day of action on March 7th to support a member who faced criminal charges for going over her allotted time at a recent Saratoga City Council meeting. Later on, Willie Terry brings us part three of his report on the Sanctuary's Black History Month celebration on February 25th with guest Reverend Jerry Ford and Shania Jackson. After that, Isabella Lafort talks with two interns from UAlbany program on women, gender, sexuality studies, and the importance of doulas in the birthing process, especially for birthing people of color. Finally, for this week's Rhythm of Rebellion, interviewed Taina Asili speaks with Maria Ramos, a New York-based Latin Grammy-winning vocalist, violinist, composer, and arranger, and founder of New York City's first and only all-women mariachi group. But first, here are the headlines.
0: The Times Union reports that a bill has been introduced in the State House of Representatives proposing a rise in the speed limit on highways that are currently 65 miles per hour to 70 miles per hour. The same bill was proposed in the Senate in January. Some oppose the move on safety reasons, saying the faster speeds lead to more crashes and deaths.
1: Parents of two girls in Mechanicville who allegedly uh, alleged sexual harassment at school say the district has not addressed safety concerns and are keeping their children out of schools until steps are taken to address the, the issues.
0: The Times Union also reports that Elise Stefanik has said that the FBI will be sharing information from its investigation into the 2018 limo crash in Schoharie that killed 20 people and the possible role of former FBI informant Shahid Hussein, who owned the limo company. Findings of the FBI investigation are not yet known.
1: With the deadline approaching for filing income taxes, Governor Hochul announced steps that New Yorkers can take to protect their data. This includes filing early before others may scan your account, filing online through a site confirmed by the IRS, and choosing direct deposit for refunds rather than having a check issued. The state website tax.ny.gov lists options for free filing online as well.
0: Speaking of scams, the Troy Record reports that this week, two men from Rensselaer a County pleaded guilty to charges of fraudulent claims of over $100,000 in unemployment insurance benefits.
1: And our federal headline. Once again, it's time to spring forward for Daylight Savings Time. Those listening to this episode on Friday, remember to change your clocks on Sunday night and if you're hearing this on monday and didn't change your clocks you may be an hour late this morning that's it for the headlines
0: for those (laughs) of you just tuning in you're listening to the hudson mohawk magazine listener supported radio that builds community in troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation
1: and our content is produced by volunteers to learn how you can contribute go to mediasanctuary.org email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org call 518- 272-2390.
0: Mark Dunley previously brought us a segment on the potential conflict of interest surrounding Queeman's port expansion involving Queeman's supervisor George McHugh. In this segment, he speaks with local residents who live on the road where Harvard Companies, the port owner and with deep financial ties to McHugh, clear-cut dozens of acres of woods without public notice.
2: Uh, the, the Times Union uh, a few weeks ago uh, fe- on uh, early February uh, wrote a story about some of the uh, conflict of interest that seemed to be uh, evident in the town of Queemans in the southern uh, part of Albany County along the river, Hudson River um, between uh, George McHugh, recently, relatively recently elected as town supervisor, and his prior relationship with the the owner of much of the town, particularly the uh, Queemans um, port. Uh, Carver Laraway, who also runs the uh, Carver companies. And we did have uh, Sarah Prisma on uh, last week and check our uh, mediacenture.org website uh, to talk about some of the things raised with George McHugh and the conference of interest in the articles. But we're joined today by Ashley and uh, Jason Redfield, who live along uh, River Road, which by the name implies probably right along the river. And uh, they've had some real concerns about what uh, uh, the Carver Company tends to be doing on some land, I guess, apparently right behind your property. So uh, welcome, Ashley and Jason. Do You want to explain to people what's uh, going on?
3: Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us on. Thank you for having us. Um, I guess like, uh, like a couple of weeks ago, um, I mean, I work nights and I started hearing diesel engines and in the daytime while i was trying to go to sleep and at first i was saying to my wife i don't i don't know what that is like we thought we thought it was just the port and then all of a sudden there were logging there was logging equipment basically almost in our backyard and i was like well as long as it stays over there that's fine and then it just came right up to our property line and all of the trees were gone (laughs) So I, I I guess that's that's where we're at right now.
4: <laughs> yeah, basically 15 acres of forest were just torn down what seemed like overnight and nobody bothered to reach out to us. Nobody told us what would be happening, what was going on, what the intended use for this property was to be. And still to this day, um, since I began first asking questions, I, I first started at town hall with a foil request and then put in a request with the dec ultimately uh they told me that it was just a general use permit that they were allowed to do all of this uh you know clear cutting with and um basically since then i've just been asking questions i've reached out to carver um i've left emails messages nobody's returned any of my calls everybody at town hall just basically seems to
3: act like nothing's happening here um or we've been kind of like stonewalled i guess um there was a town thing
2: well let me give you a little background to the listeners So, so my Port Aquemans is part of this $200 million grant State of New York did to develop offshore wind. Most are going to Port of Albany, some is port Aquemans. So just, you know, reading articles, it seemed like, as you said, they've not really disclosed what they're gonna do with this land. Mm-hmm. Um, some conjecture is might be where they'll dump the um, construction and demolition debris, you know, from what their expansion they could do with the port, maybe there's something else to do, but you no know, knowing a city hall, knowing a town hall. Carver Tina. not willing to provide answers.
3: Apparently, last night they at the town meeting they like for it was the first time that anything
2: that anybody actually
4: like can, from Carver said
3: yeah. like what their intended use of the land was gonna be. But I mean, if that was the case, why couldn't it have why couldn't it have been said to us from the get go? Like the the whole idea of being a good neighbor is to. Like Everybody that bought a house In this area has like Bought a house under the, the idea that We've got this forest behind us
2: uh-huh.
3: And they basically Ripped that Away from us in like The course of a day and uh, Why wouldn't you just tell The residents what's going on like if it's Going to be agricultural or residential or whatever Like why wouldn't you just say like I'm going to use this land for Caps yeah just just reach Out
4: <laughs> and over the last week they uh they put up all these signs that say no trespassing, video surveillance, you know, violators will be prosecuted and it's like if you're just you know gonna
3: turn clear out the trees and
4: turn it into a farm, why not just say that and why be so sneaky about it and why now are you like they they're paying people to sit in a security vehicle and patrol. What are you hiding? You know, mm. it just it it I feel like the, the further we dig, the more questions we get. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm confused about. And even if they say that it's just going to be agricultural residential use, I just don't know if I can believe that because the trust has already been violated. And, you know? it's, like- and,
3: it's, and it's on the riverfront.
4: So, yeah, I, I was going to ask you, maybe
2: you could describe, you know, the river roads. So I, I assume it's sort of close to the river. And, you know, I know in my town, I used to be on my town board, uh, you know, the general rule besides supposed to be good neighbors and town officials supposed to be good, you know, public officials, um, you know, sort of if you're, if you're applying to do something, especially like clearing land or building something, you're actually supposed to notify and write in people who are adjacent to the property. So I assume none of that has occurred. And So at this point, they're saying they're not doing this part of the port expansion, but it's agriculture and residential construction, or or, or are they clear what they're saying? I mean,
3: they're saying that this, this, this particular piece of land they're planning on using for residential slash agriculture. But like I said, this is the first we've heard from it, and that was from last night's town board meeting, but I also know that... The land next to it on the same road has been discussed as a potential spot for them to do stuff for their port expansion. Their expansion. So,
4: yeah, it states in their report that eighty-seven Bronx has been identified as a location where they're going to be dumping fill, presumably from the dredging. But we've also heard that there are materials that are at the port that they're going to need to relocate and so that they can grade. And we don't know what's in those, those, that fill, you know? And so we're just like wondering, are they going to try and secretly relocate something onto that property that could potentially contaminate our well water? Because everybody over here is on a well. And, you know, I, I just, even if they're maintaining right now that it's just going to be this like, residential agricultural area. It just doesn't make sense for that to be the
2: and, case. And my recollection is particularly with um, Carver Larraway is that you know he has pushed a number of proposals that have generated a lot of opposition in yeah. the community, burning tires uh, at the um, Lafarge cement plant where they'd be imported at the, at, at the port and then also some type of ash landfill. And so they have been you know rejected, but then he is now basically invested more resources in order to take po- political control of the town. And it doesn't seem like uh, oh I don't know, democracy is the uh, focal point right now of how government is operating in agreementmens. Would that be accurate?
3: I don't I don't feel like uh, residents are at, at, if they're being heard, I don't think that they're being taken seriously we're Uh, certainly
4: not considered we're not a high priority i feel like in this town it's just the big businesses that matter and the residents just don't matter and it's very sad
2: now we have only about a minute left i understand there's a couple upcoming meetings where some of this is going to be discussed
4: yes um the uh we're going to be hosting a couple of meetings on March 14th and the 18th. Um, They're going to be at the RCS community library. And we're basically asking the um, anybody who's interested, anybody that this affects um, to come down and to uh, express their opinions on it. And I guess people from Carverco are going to be there and who knows, maybe people from the town board. And I just, I feel like, if we could get the whole community together in one room and have a, a discussion open about this,
3: dialogue.
4: Yeah, yeah. That, um, that maybe we can get some clear answers and we can express our, our frustrations and the way that this has been approached, you know?
2: So we've been talking with Ashley and Jason Redfield, river road residents and town of Queemans. Um, if people want more information about this situation, there's a website or anything.
4: Yes. Uh, there is, clean air coalition <laughs> albanycounty.org
2: thank you very much and this has been mark Dunley for the hudson mohawk magazine
0: mark has previous stories covering this what's going on in Queens? and we will continue to follow the story
1: on march 7th saratoga black lives matter held a day of action to support a member who was charged with disorderly conduct after protesting at a city council meeting. Moses Nagel brings us this report.
5: Do you know how frustrating it was for us on the task force to be doing that work while the police were out there shooting protesters and spraying them? That happened while we were doing that work. So here we are still trying to push this work forward and then you go and do the same kind of power move. We are fighting against oppressive power. And you used it
6: right after we had that conversation. You can't have a democracy
7: where people are screaming at each other and shutting down the meeting. You can have
8: a
1: democracy where people, Americans, are allowed to speak their voice no matter what. It's
8: called freedom of speech. What the f-
7: That was Deja Harris and Lex Figueroa in conversation with Saratoga Springs Public Safety Commissioner Jin Montanino on Tuesday night. The Saratoga Springs City Council public comment period erupted for a second meeting in a row after charges were filed against the speaker, Chandler Hickenbottom, for going over her allotted time. Samira Sankara of Saratoga Black Lives Matter explains how the situation developed.
9: The first thing that happened was the city council meeting after we had a protest for Tyree Nichols and what's going on in Cop City in Atlanta. A lot of us went up and talked. Chandler got up to talk. She spoke more than a lot of two minutes. And I want this to be reminded that, you know, this isn't a tactic. A lot of people, especially like city council members like Jim, think that this is a tactic that we want to shut down meetings. Not only Chandler, but a lot of us are very, very passionate and mad, rightfully so, because council members, you know, want to talk about Tyree Nichols and how it's so sad and we should make change, and, you know, we have not seen that done at all. So, after Chandler exceeded her time for public comment, we had another council meeting, and I was the last one to speak, even though public comment was already closed, and I was speaking over Mayor Kim and everyone that was shouting over the chaos, because we were also being heckled at the same time. And the day after that, Chandler was charged for disorderly conduct for exceeding the two minute allotted time. Since then, the two minute period has now been moved to four minutes, and only nine, around nine people are allowed to talk in that time period because they only have it for a half hour. And then they move it to public comment to the uh, last part of the city council meeting. So last night, we had our city council meeting. After Chandler got uh, arraigned, Chandler got arraigned and it was brought up that Jim Montenegro wanted to put an order of protection on Chandler. Now, at that point, we were like, oh, there's an order of protection so she doesn't come near Chandler. And then later at the city council meeting, we find out is the order of protection to make sure that if Chandler does anything criminal, you know, at city council meetings, then she is subject to arrest. And what this means to us is that, this is literally violating her First Amendment right. So if Chandler does anything, if she talks out of turn, if she shouts, if she goes a little bit over her two-minute a lot of time, she will be charged. You know, this is a huge way to discourage um, her to come to city council meetings. You know, like she said, she's a lifelong Saratoga resident. She has every right to speak up. We deserve to be mad. We deserve to be angry. And it's ridiculous and it's also sad that Jim Montanino would charge Chandler a black woman after a lot of people have talked over their time, many, 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 many people almost every city, city council meeting. He did this to be to be petty. He wasn't happy that the meeting got quote unquote shut down when Chandler talked when really they shut the meeting down. They didn't want to listen to Chandler. He pressed these charges because and made this criminal this criminal complaint because He didn't like what people had to say. He didn't like that a black woman, he's also not just racist, but misogynist. And he didn't like that he couldn't finish his sentence when, you know, he was talking about Daryl Mount. Because we brought up Daryl Mount, of course, and what did he say? He was saying how all the witnesses that were present for what happened to Daryl, none of them said there was police misconduct, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all of these things that, just disregarded from what we were saying then it was last night after we left the meeting a man a white man talked over the allotted time and jim montanino said that his comments were not subjected to arrest so it just shows clearly how jim montanino picks and chooses you know who to charge he says in the articles and in the news that it doesn't matter whose race or ethnicity or gender it is, but clearly by the facts in his actions, Chandler is black and a woman. So, you know, it, it all adds up. It's not just, you know, these random acts that are going on.
7: Daryl Mount was a black resident of Saratoga who was shot by police under mysterious circumstances in 2013. Last year, the city brought several charges against another Saratoga BLM leader, Lex Figueroa, which were all subsequently dropped I asked Ms. Sankara if this seemed like a repeat of those tactics from the city.
9: Yeah, it's absolutely a pattern, and it's sad because it's a pattern with a new administration. You know what I mean? Like, we had talks with Jim Montanino. Our whole group had talks with Jim Montanino before he was a public safety commissioner. This was when we were trying to get him into his seat, and we were talking about the changes that we could make, and look at, look at what's happened. You know, history is repeating itself, and he doesn't care that The AG is investigating SSPD in the city on civil rights violations. You know what I mean? Like this will be included in their investigation. Like, and at the same time, he clearly doesn't realize that like Lex said last night at the city council meeting, we have beat every case that we've been charged with in Saratoga Springs. Every single case has either been dismissed or has gotten ACOD, ACOD for six months. Like, really, it sounds like he wants to make a point, a point that is uh, racist, misogynistic, and, you know, he's clearly not thinking through things. He's either not thinking or he doesn't care, you know?
7: Many people in the meeting mentioned frustration with the city's inaction on a 50-point plan for more equitable policing that the group worked out with city officials.
9: Two of them have been implemented. There are 48 other points that have not been implemented or talked about. And, you know, this was done in... 2020 2020 and none of these things have been taken seriously you know it's not like we have like a lot of demands we just want transparency accountability we want saratoga to be a better place for people to live who's minority who's poor you know what i mean um it's kind of a slap in the face you know like like we said we've we put you in office and we can take you out too you know, it's discouraging, it's disgraceful, but, you know, that, that's not going to mean that we stop. You know, we're going to keep going and continue to harp on the 50 points that need to be implemented because it is three years later and they have not been implemented yet. We've been talking for a long, long, long time now, and we can only talk so much until they take action on what we're saying and they actually listen to us, not just hear us, but listen. You know, you know have some empathy. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, a lot of those city council members have not been in our shoes. They don't know what it's like to be black. They don't know what it's like to be a woman or to be uh, non-binary. Have some empathy. Not everything is a tactic. We could be mad and angry, and rightfully so.
7: Skidmore professor Winston Grady-Willis spoke toward the end of the public comment period.
6: I want to be very clear. What's happened to Chandler, more importantly, what's happened in recent months, is on a, one end of the spectrum that some might call mild, with the other being assassination, political imprisonment, forced exile, right, in the case of someone like Assad Shakur. But the point is simply that, and I mean this sincerely, when folks like Chandler, Sister Chandler, disrupt, they're just reminding those of us who are more privileged, who are in positions of power, that we've got to do more. There's a reason why, as privileged as I am, there's a reason why we don't live in Saratoga Springs. There is a racism in this particular city that's often not discussed. Okay, that's often cloaked in the kind of the realities of of old money, right, And, and decades of privilege. But it's absolutely incumbent that folks speak truth to power. And so, with that, I'll. All in, and just remind folks again that there is indeed a spectrum. And what's taking place right now is on one end of it, but things can move slowly but surely to the other end if we're all not vigilant, principled, and willing to actually engage in dialogue and not be demeaning and dismissive of those who dare to speak truth to power.
7: Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel.
0: That was part of the Black Lives Matter Day of Action held on March 7th in Saratoga um, in protest of the city council meeting. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahickey.
1: And I'm Callan McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP, 105.3 FM Troy, WOOCLP glp 92.7 fm troy wos lp 98.9 fm schenectady and woa lp 106.9 fm albany streaming online at mediasanctuary.org this program comes from the sanctuary for independent media in troy new york
0: if you like what you hear, you can find you can support this program by telling a friend, sharing is caring, spread the word makes a big difference in our uh, in our work. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org.
1: Our roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry took a break from his usual beat to attend the Sanctuary's February 25th celebration of Black History Month. This is part 3 of his coverage of this event.
8: So let me tell you about what I found, what I discovered in the book, right? The first two, the very second paragraph. This book is talking about, once again, my great uncle. It's talking about his legacy. It says, Reverend Ford's rich heritage began with his great grandfather, Edward Ford Sr., who was freed from slavery. So this is my great, great grandfather. He was freed from slavery. He was blessed to buy land in his community, ambitious and innovative, Edward dug the very first well in the community. Edward's brother received his freedom at the same time, but he refused to accept the slave master's name and paid $25 to have his name changed to Harris. Mr. Harris also bought land and organized and built the very first church in the community. I didn't know none of this. I never knew this stuff. All I did was just do as God had instructed me to do, walking in this path. And as I walked in the path, he revealed to me that I was actually walking in legacy. So if you turn this page, right, turn the book, it goes to another page. I, like, I really like this page because it tells of this gentleman right here. So this is, the, this is the son of Edward. This gentleman right here, the picture. This is the son of Edward. So what I did, of course, these my people. So, you know, I had to get it printed out in frame. You know what I'm saying? He's my fault. He's my, he look like me? I look like him?
2: <laughs>
8: my wife says I look just like him. This man here, this man here, father was a slave. But look, he got a bow tie on, don't he? He got a little handkerchief in his pocket, ain't he? And you know that. I don't even, I don't even know why I started doing it. Y'all know, if those who know me know at one point I changed my whole wardrobe to bow ties. Remember that? And I don't even know where it came from. (laughs) Just real quick, real quick. Bryce, Mr. Bryce Ford, after his children were older, he would spend the summers in Philadelphia where he built many homes. He built his own family home in Jenkins, Georgia, Purchasing many acres of land and expanding his farm, and later became very successful. Mr. Bryce Ford Sr. was one of the first in his community to own a Model T Ford. He accomplished many things because of his trade as a carpenter. He owned and managed his own farm. He was a Christian in the very truest sense of the word, where he was a faithful steward at Bethlehem AME Church of Jenkins, Georgia. He was also a great community worker. When I read that, I I broke down like a baby. I cried. This man right here was a great community worker. And that's what God has allowed me to establish right here in my life here in the city of Troy. So I I just wanted to share that with y'all, let y'all know, whenever you humble yourself, in a place where you can catch a download from God, I'm telling you, fantastic things will happen. And so I'm gonna go ahead and make room for our very first, po- our very first poet. Um, she is very near and dear to my heart. I've had the opportunity to watch this young lady grow up um, and find a love and a passion for teaching. Come on, man, I mean a love and a passion for teaching. And so I've learned that I got an opportunity to watch her and just to be a part of her life and I'm so privileged to be able to encourage her and watch her go to the next level. Y'all give it up for Miss Shania Jackson.
10: going to work very, very hard not to get choked up while um, up here. Um, I'm sorry, let me start off correctly. Hi, I'm Shania. I am, <laughs> I am the daughter of Doris Jackson and Eddie Jackson, granddaughter of Susie Holmes and Ernest Holmes. I'm, I'm a member of... I always try to start with talking about who I represent and who you see. I am, I'm a member of the United Ordained Church of God and Christ, as well as the secretary for the Troy NAACP. And I've taught in many spaces. I don't even want to speak where I teach now, but I teach, I've taught in many, many spaces um, in Troy and otherwhere. Um, I'm, again, trying not to be emotional while I'm up here, because the last time I've stood on this stage was um, January 20th. 2020, and I remember that day very, very well, because it was what I consider the last normal day, in my life at least, um, because the following day, January 21st, 2020, was the day that we lost my father. And I remember leaving here and going to the hospital there, and you know, I read the poem to him at his bedside um, on, his, on his deathbed, sadly, um, and I remembered the peace I felt in this sanctuary here um, so I'm just thankful that this space exists, and it's continuing to encourage the truth as well of the black experience, and and really raising the voices of some of the people who could be otherwise voiceless, especially in Troy, um, because my family is who taught me how to be proud in myself and proud of the black women especially, so I'm just appreciative that I'm able to um, be here once again. I was originally going to speak all about my dad and give a nice poem that I read at his funeral, and yada, yada, yada. Um, But a big theme, a big theme of today um, really should be the truth of what the black experience is and going just beyond trauma. Because to be quite honest, it is very traumatic, not only to be a black person, but it's very traumatic to learn about our history, because I don't know about you, but I went to, I went to school too, and I had one, I really two black teachers, and one black teacher in the school, and she was kindergarten teacher, she was great, Ms. Wilcox, great. Um, but when they would talk about things during black history, one of the first things they go to is suffering. Mm-hmm. Yes, you and you came over, and you were in chains, and you know, now, but now look at you. You're not in chains anymore, and you're doing great, and we had the first black president here, and we had Condoleezza rights over here, and everything's great. And it's all rooted in our trauma. And we don't think about how that affects a child growing up and how that affects their way of thinking because now they have to think, I have to walk through life and be great at everything because I'm holding all this weight on my shoulders because I came from slavery, of course. So I have to be great and perfect at everything because what would, what would they think? They were slaves. Obviously I have to go impress them, right? So I wanted to read something I wrote um, called Rain, I love it. Um, that was actually inspired just by some of my recent events because I've had to do a lot of reflecting on the weight of what it means to be not only a black woman, but a black educator as well, and how difficult that, that burden can be. And I was actually gifted this book by, um, by a teacher of a student I used to work, um, I used to teach, a parent of a student I used to teach, um, who I'm so, so loving, white parents specifically, which actually made it more touching to me. Um, it's called Restless Resistance, A manifesto by Trisha Hershey. I don't know her, but if you can read it, I would suggest it. It is lovely. Have I read it yet? No, because I'm very bad at resting, which is what the book is about. I've read through it, but I haven't truly read it. But it's all about the importance of rest and how we believe, especially as Black people, that we don't deserve rest and we don't deserve to take a breath um, because of everything we're expected to do. You know I do. Absolutely. We as black people don't always believe that we deserve to have rest. Because again, we know what burden we have on our shoulders. We know what has happened to bring us here. At least we know the, the negative side of everything that's happened to bring us here. So we feel that there's so much that we have to now prove, because we hold all of our ancestors on our shoulder. We hold our entire community on my shoulder. Whether you want to or not, me standing here, I represent every other black person in this room and in this city. Whether you like it or not, whether you're another black person saying, no, I'm here too, I'm the one talking though. (laughs) So I'm the one representing it. Whatever I say, that's what's gonna be reflected on you. Sorry, not sorry, hope I do well. So I wanted to reflect on a piece that really talks about the importance of allowing ourselves the rest and allowing ourselves to take on that being black and existing is hard and it's okay for it to be hard and therefore, Resting while having a hard Black experience, whether you're aware of it or not, is okay. So this is called rain. You are your ancestors' wildest dreams. You can thirst for water and have the amazing ability to satisfy it. Your body was perfectly crafted to have desire and need for something that requires us to stop for a moment, a moment of rest. Satisfying our thirst for water requires a moment of self-focus to remind us that we are not made for labor alone. Black women, we are not made for labor alone. Black people, we are not made for labor alone. African descendants, we are not made for labor alone. We were not made to deny the needs of our purest souls for the sole benefit of pleasure for others. We are made to drink water. We were made to dance in the rain. Thank you. Yes.
8: That was amazing. That was amazing, Shania. Graham.
0: That was roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry, uh, who brought us that recording from a recent Black History Month of uh, celebration that took place in collaboration with Troy and NAACP. Team Hero, and the Coalition for Black Trade Union at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. You can find part one and two on our website, mediasanctuary.org.
1: In an earlier episode, we covered the struggle by doulas to allow insurance payments for their birth services. In this segment, Isabella LaForte talks with two interns in UAlbany program on women, gender, and sexuality studies about the importance of the support of doulas for birthing people, especially black women.
11: Hi, I'm Isabella, and today I'm here with Uh, Shade Lubin and Tony Tudor. And we're going to be talking about um, the doula program. So Shade, what is a doula?
12: Um, A doula is a person who provides guidance and support to a pregnant person during their pregnancy journey and postpartum.
11: And like, what do they specifically do?
12: Uh, so th- they're think of it as like a an expensive buddy. <laughs> no, seriously, it's expensive, but we'll get to that part later. So they provide physical and emotional support. So physical would be more like massages, breathing techniques. Once you're it's time to give birth, emotional they're pretty much they guide you. Um, they'll provide comfort, encouragement, like push, push. I guess, yeah. but um,
5: they're just basically like a advocate.
12: Basically. Yeah. So if so, let's say they, want, they have concerns and they feel like they're not being heard by the medical professionals, that's usually where the doula comes in to advocate further and tell, basically say, can you answer her question?
10: Okay. it's okay. yeah. this
12: sort of situation. Uh, research yeah. has shown that people who use doulas are less likely to have underweight newborns and less likely to experience postpartum depression and more likely to, to initiate breastfeeding. So,
5: yeah. Basically, doulas just help support pregnant people by fully supporting their birthing plans. They'll um, take all the decisions that they have before and after delivery and make sure that they're concrete and the person that they're helping is okay with that. Like This could be helping explain medical procedures at appointments um, before and after they occur. Uh, But most importantly, they're just supposed to be an advocate and a representative by asking questions and giving communication for who they're helping
11: out. Um, How does one get started to become a doula?
12: Okay, but um, personally, anyone can become a doula because I think there's, I don't know if it's a misconception, but they're not medically trained. So, so it's
11: like a certification that you need to yeah get. it's a
12: certification but it's not like you have to go to school for this mm-hmm. like people tend to mix that and midwives if you yeah. want actual medical training you would become a midwife i mean if you want to combine the two you can because some of the people that i intern with are midwives and doulas mm-hmm. but yeah anyone could be a, a doula there's no experience needed necessary you just how need... long how long does it take so i guess it varies but the one that in my internship, it's a six week course.
11: So that's Birthnet that you do, and yeah. it's a six week Yeah, course. it's Birthnet
12: is the birth justice organization that's hosting it, but the actual doula organization is Mama Glow.
11: Okay. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit more about Mama Glow
12: and what they're doing? They're a, a wellness and organization, a doula organization. Do they have a website? It's MamaGlow.com. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, check them out. The training if you want to pay for it yourself, the training site is available right now. Yeah.
11: And how on average how much does a doula get paid? Do you know?
12: Oh, yeah, it's between 1500 to 2k. For how long? For like the entire pregnancy yeah. journey. Yeah. Okay. But um, so far only in 6 states, it's Oregon, Minnesota, New Jersey, Florida, Maryland, and Virginia that reimburse the doulas through Medicaid. And to be more accessible to everyone, regardless of their socioeconomic backgrounds, they're trying to say, let's do it community-based. So Mm. if they can't afford it, it doesn't matter because the government will pay you. (laughs) Mm.
5: So will they also pay you a salary and the Medicaid, or is it exclusively through?
12: I think it's just like a a reimbursement payment. Yeah, mm -hmm. but it's only in six states. Not even New York has that yet.
5: Yeah, that's true. I (laughs) guess there's still time for it to just develop and
12: yeah they're trying to make it nationwide though
5: okay yeah
11: how do you think having a doula um, improves the pregnancy experience for women of color
5: um i think that having a doula especially within black and brown communities is important because it allows those uh mothers and birthing people to feel comfortable enough to use their voices you know something that is usually silenced in medical spaces um Research provides that mothers um, have fewer medical interventions, have lower chances of having a c-section, and fewer epidurals when they have a doula. And especially for um, people of color, um, things like having complications during birth is very high, higher than their counterparts. So, you know, when you have a doula, it's like an extra layer of protection for not only you but the baby and your family you know it alleviates a sense of burden and you know after postpartum there's benefits as well as Sade mentioned Um, you know there's longer breastfeeding durations better um, bonds with the baby and just the overall you know lower rate of postpartum depression I feel as though just having a doula gives an overall
11: benefit to the entire experience mm-hmm. for everyone involved. So, um, Shade, what are you trying to do with you, um, Albany, with getting
12: like people involved with the doula program? Um, Let's we'll see. So, so far, Mama Glow is prioritizing Mama Glow and Birthnet are prioritizing you, Albany students, to join. Okay. But what I want is for everyone who's interested in joining to not pay a dime. So that's why I've been with the help of Dr. Bhatia um, having to contact the correct people in the UAlbany admin to be like, can you sponsor at least 15 people? I'd be shocked if they actually did more, but yeah. it's positively pending right now. Mm-hmm. I'll, I would hope by the end of the week. I mean, currently their deadline, um, they're asking for payment for UAlbany students is March 15th, but let's hope we get that before then, because I just realized next week oh my gosh, is yeah. also spring break. So now is the they're going to be open. But I've gotten a lot of nice comments from students who say they really want to do this. Mm-hmm.
5: I think it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I think not only for the uh, BirthNet and Mama Glow, but for WGSS students mm-hmm. and like the platform that we have here. Because I feel like just because we're so small and niche, like mm-hmm. I feel like this would definitely be like an event or a sponsor. Like just create a precedent for something in the future. Yeah. yeah, definitely.
11: I feel like this would, like, people would talk about this. Yeah.
12: Oh, yeah. It's not even just WGSS. It's also the School of um, Social Work. Um, MPH students are also yeah. signing up to join as well.
5: Yeah, it's, it, like, exactly. Like, you know, we get involved not only like, I feel like people don't really realize how WGSS can be at a different accesses. Like, you know, we can reach out to public health students, STEM students, not only us and you know, Africana studies and you know, what you would usually think that mm-hmm. people would those individuals would want to be interested in.
11: Yeah, it's definitely all like
12: interconnected. Yeah, which yeah. is
5: across the aisle.
12: Even mm-hmm. someone from criminal justice who wants to do it too. Yeah. yeah. When you
5: think of like a birthing person, you automatically think of like a married person who has everything together but it could be like a teenager who got pregnant yep. and like might need a doula or women in prison who need doulas mm-hmm. who need help you know like it yeah it's just because it's just so many different niches that could go under yeah.
11: i believe really especially it for like heart. single <laughs> single potential parents that like too, having a doula too, is probably too, too. very very helpful yeah
5: yeah, that's so true. And I feel like it's something that we definitely don't learn about in, like, normal health. Yeah, I yeah, didn't even know
11: what a doula was. Yeah. Like, when, roof, roof. when we first started talking about it in class, I had no idea. I, I know what a midwife is, is but that's different. different. Yeah. Yeah,
12: more so, because, yeah, they actually have the medical training to mm-hmm. actually give birth. If you're just, yeah. it's like, oh. <laughs> yeah,
5: that's the one thing that did surprise me, is that they do have non, it's all non-medical. Yeah. Like, they're not gonna, you know, um, give you a surgery or give no. you a s- scan or anything. I feel like with met like doctors maybe or like people who are in medicine like they might be so overwhelmed that like they lose the empathetic side of it and that's why they kind of like and they're just so, sometimes internal biases that just overtake and so having that extra person I feel like
12: it's just necessary
11: mm-hmm. okay well thank you so much for joining me today thank, mm-hmm. you, thank you for
12: you having, having us, us. <laughs> Even as, as jumbled as this is thank you mm-hmm. yeah.
0: That was Isabella Laforte on her series looking at women women, gender, and sexuality, um, while her series is on safety. And you can find more information on that program with the in the information to this seg- story on our website.
1: The Rhythm of Rebellion is a series of interviews by Taina Asili with with performing artists who are leading social change across genres and exploring the strategies they are using in their arts to bring justice and healing to their communities in our worlds. This week, she speaks with Mira Ramos.
13: Mireya Ramos is a New York-based Latin Grammy-winning vocalist, violinist, composer, arranger, and founder of Flor de Toloache, New York City's first and only all-women mariachi group. Born in California to Dominican and Mexican parents, Mireya was raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico until moving to New York in her teen years to pursue her musical career. Hi Mireya, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so grateful to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, I'm excited to be here. In reading about your work, I also learned that you you too come from a musical family mm-hmm. with connections to Puerto Rico where you're currently speaking with me from. And so I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about how this upbringing has influenced the work that you do today, not only in the musical styles, but also perhaps in some of that deeper intention and that heart. Yeah,
14: absolutely. I mean, I feel like that is everything that I am. You know, what I portray, what I express through my music but I was very lucky. I'm very blessed to have uh, both of my parents very proud to be where they're from. My dad's from Mexico and my mom's from Dominican Republic. And they're both music lovers. They're both singers. My dad was a mariachi singer and my mom collected vinyl and she just naturally sings beautifully. And uh, she's very socially conscious. And so she made sure that my brother and I grew up being proud of being Afro-Latinos, but, you know, growing up as an Afro-Latino is not always easy. It's, you often find yourself feeling that you're not from one place or the other. And so I often found myself feeling a little bit out, out of place and being the darkest one in my class and all of those type of things. And, you know, as you get older, you start noticing those things and people make you conscious of that. And so I have to say that my family and music really saved my life. It really gave me that avenue to find myself and find myself through other artists and through songs. And uh, I have my mom to thank for that because she taught us our pride and shared with us our, our roots through these songs, whatever songs she saw herself in, including like Las Caras Lindas, who a, a, a beautiful song by Tete Curalon, so now for Puerto Rican composer that I grew up listening to in salsa. And then, fast forward, I have an old female mariachi from New York City doing fusion, and then we cover that song in a very different Mm. way. And so I think because of all those experiences and and in my Mexican side, you know, I do mariachi, I'm very well involved in my Mexican roots, and I really fell in love with where I come from through music. I'm also very lucky, and I find it a responsibility, where I'm at now, to represent My experience, but also represents the experience that is the experience of many. Uh, A lot of people see themselves and in me or in the other women that are part of Florida Toluache. And so to see that kind of feedback and to see that kind of impact is also priceless. As an artist is something that maybe sometimes you don't even think about that you can change a whole community by just doing what you love and doing it genuinely and from the heart. And it's so lovely to see a little girl come to my show that looks like me and, or, you know, we look alike and and she can tell me, like, I'm so excited to see you up there and you inspire me. And she's going through the same challenges I did growing up. And it's sad that people are still going through that, but it's also amazing that there's a lot more res- representation out there nowadays. And so, That definitely confirms the the importance of representation and the work that we do.
13: I was reading an interview that you did with LATV. You said that at some point I understood that what we are doing is beyond music. It truly is a mission. Can you tell me more about that mission?
14: Yeah, I mean, I think that I feel the responsibility because of where I am now in my career, where I have the means and the platform to talk about things that are important. And I'm constantly in the public eye. And so I'm very conscious of how I represent myself and can inspire and impact the next generation. That's so important because it was so important to me. And I feel like I was able to find myself through music. I have the opportunity to represent my community in a certain way, and I'm gonna take that, you know? and. I didn't have that growing up. I didn't have someone that looks like me that sang the music that I, that I like, mariachi or even, uh, uh, I don't know, Latin pop. Most women look, you know, way whiter than me, even if they were Latina. And still to this day, you know, there's not a lot of Afro Latinas that are like making it big. Because of those reasons, I feel the responsibility to do that. And we've witnessed the impact that we've, generated with just existing as as a group and the things that we're doing, the fact that we are revolutionizing in a genre that's male-dominated and a genre that for a lot of people is their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents' music, especially the generation that are maybe born in the U.S. or moved from their Mexico or anywhere in Latin America and came to the U.S., they feel connected to our music because I went to New York when I was 17 and I, I speak Spanish. You know, I, I do go between Spanish and, and, and English. And so a lot of kids that are in, in the U.S. can relate to that. And that's part of the reason why Shay and I chose to do sp- songs in Spanish and English. And, and now this new album has more of a bilingual vibe to it. Mm-hmm. And, Language is also an important thing that we didn't really realize until we saw ourselves in those situations or when we started getting feedback from people and how people connected to our songs. You know, we were just literally doing what was genuine to us. Yeah. We were expressing ourselves. And and when you're genuine and you are really put your heart out, you really see how people connect to that tremendously. And... And then you don't feel as alone because sometimes you feel alone. You know, you feel like, oh, am I the only one going through this? But you're not. But we've seen so many conversations being sparked just by the fact that we wear pants in the mariachi world, just for the fact that we wear our hair out. That I have curly hair and I'm leading a band and I'm Afro Latina and there's no mariachi led by an Afro Latina. You know, probably we're probably the only ones. All of those little things that you didn't even think about have. Caused a, uh, a a little bit of a friction, a little bit of a um, how do you call it, a challenge. You know, it's and uh, people start commenting on our social media, very negative, uh, borderline racial stuff. And mm-hmm. and so then you think about it, and you're like, instead of getting angry, I I actually I'm actually intrigued and curious to see like why where is is this coming from? Like you know, let's talk about it. Yeah. Why don't why do you feel this way? Why do you feel Threatened by someone that's wearing her hair out (laughs) with a mariachi suit? Like, why is that such a big deal for you? There must be something, you know? Right. Because at this day and age, that should not be an issue, but it is, and it is in our communities, and that—that is the root of the problem, you know. That's why we take so seriously how we represent ourselves, and obviously, we might not be perfect. We might, we can, we can always do more, but we do what we can, and we try to do it as genuinely as possible. Absolutely.
13: It sort of leads me to my next question, which is, uh, what are some important teachings that you've learned? If you were speaking to the next generation of performing artists who are seeking to lift up uh, messages of love and liberation to the world, what do you think would be useful to the next generation?
14: I feel like there's a gap between my generation and the next generation just because of the internet you know and social media and all that so i think that connecting those two things and being kind to each other and being sympathetic sometimes we forget that and see the beauty you know the same uh message of inclusion and love is just not just including gender or racially you know it goes it goes way farther than that you know right. it's beyond that and and People are have a lot of layers to them. Human beings, no matter where you come from, and I think that we have to keep that in mind. And sometimes it's hard if your only connection is one online, you know. And mm-hmm. that's the, I feel like I see that in a new generation. There's a little bit of uh, disconnection there socially, you know, and, and a lack of sympathy sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's, that might change. I don't know. That's just the feeling I get right now and what I've experienced lately. But there's a sense of confidence and freedom that our generation didn't have. That's very admirable of this new generation. The fact that, you know, they want, they want a better world. They want to be more inclusive. They don't want, to live the way we lived, you know, the way, the way we thought of people and, and our society. And that's really, that's great. I mean, that gives me hope. Listen
13: to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. Thanks for listening.
0: That was Taina Asili speaking with Mireya Ramos. And... Tune back in this same time next week to hear another performing artist leading social change. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilla hickey
1: And I'm Kalen McPherson. Our engineer for tonight is Sina Bazilla hickey We want to thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Headlines and script are from Bria Barthel, segment producers Mark Dunley, uh, Isabel Laforte, Willie Terry, Moses Nagel, and Taina... Aseelie. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.
12: Hi, it's Nico, the youngest producer. You've been listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, featuring news and views from around the New York Capital Region. Listen at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. on Sanctuary Radio 105.3 FM, Troy, and online at mediasanctuary.org. You can also visit mediasanctuary.org anytime to hear the Hudson Mohawk magazine on demand or to sign up for our podcast.